Welcome to the OA Virtual Kitchen Sink Meeting Podcast. Visit the Los Angeles Intergroup at oalaig.org for information on how to join our meeting live and how to donate to support this meeting and our podcasts. The opinions expressed on the Kitchen Sink Podcast are those of the individual speakers and do not represent OA as a whole. And now, our speaker. My name is Ida. I'm a compulsible reader. There are people here that I have known forever and people I've never met. So I'll start with my pictures. And there I am. I uh, came into Overeaters Anonymous on April 17th, 1975. I have uh, 47 years of abstinence from uh, compulsive overeating. And I... uh, I'm a hundred pounder. This is exactly what I looked like when I came into OA. This picture is a school picture, and it was probably taken, well, it was taken in April, I can guarantee it, and that was when I came in. So that is what I looked like then. And this is what I look like now. I think it's quite an improvement myself. I, uh, I almost canceled today. Um, which I am loath to do, but I almost did because I am very distracted. So I have no idea uh, where this is going to go. <clears throat> My sister, uh, who is 89 years old and who um, has been a fabulous sister, uh, is um, near death. She uh, Last week I was uh, visiting her and uh, the medical person said she had like two to three weeks. So she's down a week and I'm going back up tomorrow to um, spend some time with her. So I am needless to say, and for good reason, rather distracted, but I'm going to do the best that I can. That's all I'm responsible for is the best that I can do. (laughs) Um, I started my physical recovery immediately. I did not waste any time. I got I got abstinent immediately. I called OA on April 16th, 1975, and I started abstaining the very next day. And I went to my first meeting on April 20th. And yes, I do count those days before I, before I went to my first meeting because they, I, I was surrendered. I took the first three steps. I used to say I took the first three steps when I walked into my first meeting, but that's not true. I took the first three steps when I made that phone call. And that is my explanation for having continuous abstinence from that phone call. Now, I, uh, I went from all out binging and to be a hundred pounder, you know what I ate like, to uh, eating um, actually quite little my first year. If I had a sponsee who ate as little as I did my first year, I would have her ass on a platter. Uh, but uh, that's what I did because that was how desperate I was. I desperately did not want to be fat anymore. I did not want to go through that humiliation anymore. So I started weighing in my fish, uh, weighing and measuring my food and uh, counting calories. I didn't get a sponsor until I had five months of abstinence and a 50 pound weight loss. But nobody had to tell me that I needed to weigh and measure my food. 
because I knew <laughs> that there was a connection between what I put in my mouth and what my body looked like. And I also knew that the only way I could know what I was eating was to put it on a scale. So to this day, um, I weigh and measure my food when I'm at home and I eat moderately when I'm not. Uh, it just is the easier, softer way. I, you know, I look, I sit down and I know what's there. I eat it all. I do not leave a bite for God. I do not lead, I do not share food. I don't do any of that stuff um, because, you know, I know what's there. So I don't have to worry about what's there. Okay. I, um, I uh, ate by the clock. I didn't depend on hunger sing signals to tell me when to eat. Uh, and I still eat by the clock. And everything in my house happens early. I get up early, I eat my meals early, I go to bed early. And uh, it just works uh, that way much better for me. See, it takes, it takes my food out of the realm of, oh, am I or am I not? You know, what should I eat? How much should I eat? When should I eat? I just, you know, I'm, I'm more secure in my life when those things are a foregone conclusion, okay? Now, some people, I have actually had people say that I am rigid and that's just bullshit, I'm not rigid, I am disciplined. And one person's rigidity is another person's discipline. And I am very thankful that I am a disciplined person. Uh, because uh, my doctor tells me that if I wasn't a disciplined person, I would be dead. Uh, two years ago this month, I was diagnosed with severe heart failure. And uh, my cardiologist told me that I had six months, two years to live. And uh, he uh, put me on medication and I immediately landed in the hospital because of the medication. And so I, here I was set out uh, with um, no medication except for a tiny dose of Lasix. And uh, directions to cut my salt intake to a ridiculously low amount and to exercise every day. And you know how you feel uh, like exercising when your heart just is not doing its job. But I did it anyhow. I uh, cut my salt to next to nothing. I now measure my salt. And uh, I continued to exercise, even though I was in a miserable state. And lo and behold, two years later, I now have mild heart failure instead of severe heart failure. And instead of a two-year death sentence, I, um, <laughs> my doctor says, oh, you can go on like this forever until something else gets you, you know? And, and, uh, and that is, you know, that is the power of discipline and consistency. You know, consistency is not glamorous. It's not exciting, but it sure as hell works and that's, uh, and now my exercise, I've been exercising every day for decades. And uh, it's just, it's been an important, an important part of my physical recovery. And uh, I know there are people saying, well, you know, the weight is just a symptom. And I go, well, if I still exhi exhibit the symptoms of the disease, I better 
be treating that disease because it's still going. And uh, uh, so I've had to make changes. Well, I, like I just told you, uh, you know, to my, to my food because of health conditions, not only that, but because of some autoimmune stuff I have going on. But, uh, you know, thanks to um, the, uh, the discipline that I have uh, in this program, I've been able to do those. Okay, my emotional uh, recovery, I was thinking about this, and I think one of the big things that has changed in me is my willingness to accept responsibility for myself. Because I absolutely did not want to accept responsibility for myself before I came into this program. From early on, <laughs> I will tell you a, a little story. Um, when I was like five, six years old, my uh, brother who lived next door to me on our farm was making ice cream with this old fashioned crank. And I wanted to crank it. And there was no way in the world I could get that sucker done, you know, one rotation. It would have been physically impossible. But I, I got really mad at him when he said no. So I went over and I sat on my sofa. And uh, then I thought, okay, I got up, walked over to his house again. And I, and this is a quote, please forgive my language, but remember it's coming out of the mouth of a five-year-old. I said, my mommy and daddy told me to call you a goddamn son of a bitch. Now at age five, I'm blaming my behavior on other people. I'm telling you know, him that it's not my fault. This is what my mommy and daddy told me to tell you. And his response was to laugh hysterically and throw me over his shoulder and carry me back and dump me on the sofa and tell my parents. And they go, oh, Ida. But you see, this is, I tell this story and it even cracks me up, but it, it really demonstrates how I did not want to accept responsibility. Now, as a teenager, I actually uh, flirted with the idea of entering, entering a convent because I was extremely, extremely religious at the time. And if I did that, then somebody else would tell me what to wear, where I was going to work, what time I was going to go to bed, get up, everything. I wouldn't have to make a decision because I would be told exactly what to do. And, and then, you know, and they would feed me too. So they would tell me what I was going to eat. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, that would have worked well. <laughs> Where would I have gotten my food? But I can tell you, one of the best AA speakers I ever heard was a nun. And she said, I bet you guys wonder where I got my alcohol. Well, when an alcoholic needs a drink, she can find it. And I'm sure I would have found my food. I would have been a fat nun, you know, <laughs> I would have been. Uh, but so that, again, demonstrates my unwillingness to accept responsibility for myself. So I come into this program. And I am handed a big book inventory, four columns, fourth column, my part. Oh my God, you know, I get to look at what I have done wrong. My sponsor explained to me in the first three columns, I can rant and rave and take other people's inventory to the hilt, especially in the second column. But then in the 
fourth column, I get to turn to myself and find out what my part was. And it, you know what? In finding what my part is, it gives me power. It gives me the power to change. Because if nothing is my fault, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. But when I can accept my responsibility in whatever has happened, then I can, I can change it. Now, I'm only responsible for what I do. I'm not responsible for what you do. And uh, I, uh, I used to think that I was responsible for everything. I was responsible. I was personally responsible for the war in Vietnam. Uh, you know, if that, if that kind of thinking had continued, I would be responsible for the hurricane in Florida. And I'm not joking. That was how. But you see then, but here's the irony is that when I'm responsible for everything, then that makes me very powerful in my eyes. Very powerful. And I realized many years ago that I would rather feel guilty than powerless. I would rather feel to be to blame than to be powerless. So, um, but you know, in the, the OA 12 and 12 second edition, it says on page 41, uh, we admit to ourselves who we've been and what we've done. As we do this, we gain new hope. We start to feel that we can forgive ourselves, be forgiven, and move toward creating a new life free from food obsession. And then on page 42, it says, sometimes coming to understand our motives helps us to forgive ourselves. Often we see that at some level, we were fighting for survival when we did the things we did. Most of us find that fear is at the root of many of our damaging emotions and actions. As we grow in the 12-step way of life, we learn that our fears usually stem from our inability to trust that our basic needs will be met. Perhaps we have good reason for our mistrust. Perhaps people have failed us, placing us in situations we were not emotionally prepared to handle. Still, we find we have to outgrow our doubts. If we are to recover, we must learn to trust other people and entrust our lives to a power greater than and then ourselves. So that very thing that I rejected all those years before I came to program uh, helps me to recover, helps me to change. Uh, and what have I gotten out of my uh, emotional recovery? Uh, one thing, uh, I was a teacher and I became a good teacher. I was a crappy teacher before I got into Old Readers Anonymous. And some of the most difficult amends I had to make were the children that I had had in my classroom. Very difficult amends, but I made them. And, you know, I was able to retire uh, with the respect of my colleagues and, uh, and, uh, That was, it was just a great blessing. I had a, um, I, I was able to become a good daughter to my mother in her final uh, years. And that was a conscious effort. I decided I am going to be a good daughter. And- uh, Five minute warning. Thank you. And when I, 
I had to take contrary action sometimes to do that. I, I did it. And, uh, and I knew why I was doing it. I didn't want to feel guilty after she died. And it helped me a lot to take, uh, to take those actions. Uh, I had a, an amazing marriage of 37 years that would have been impossible without Overeaters Anonymous. My husband says that he would have loved me if I had been fat. And I go, you would not have ever known me if, if I had been fat. I would not have allowed him anywhere near me. He was the best OA husband I've ever met. He was not a compulsive overeater. He was so far in the opposite direction. He used to drive me crazy. But uh, he was so good to me. And he knew that I had to do stuff. And he never stood in my way. And uh, then um, my emotional recovery allowed me to survive his death six years ago, which was the worst experience of my life. Um, much worse than being sick myself. Much, much worse. And uh, I was able to care for him in his final years. And uh, I... Uh, Wish I was still doing that, but um, anyhow. So I have uh, three minutes for spiritual rec uh, recovery, and oh my God, uh, the heart and soul of my program is meditation. I've I've had a daily meditation practice for uh, eight years. It only took me thirty nine years to start in, uh, meditating in this program. Uh, and I found it in a, you know, an outside source. I do what is called a secular mindfulness. There is no God involved because I'm an atheist. And uh, I made that, um, made that clear uh, well over 20 years ago. And when I came in, you know, I came in wishing there was a God for a long time. I believed I, there was a God. Uh, I was never like other people's gods. Uh, you know, all God was going to do for me was change my attitude. It was not going to change anything else. Just my attitude. I took the 11th step, literally, and that's all I asked for was a change of attitude. But at 25 years of abstinence, I got on my knees one night and I thought, why am I doing this? And I got up and that was it. So I actually, I do 11 and a half steps. I don't do the prayer part of the 11th step. Now I pray at meetings, but it's an act of community. I don't think anybody's listening, uh, but, uh, but it helps me to be with you. And uh, I, uh, that's my story. Um, did um, admitting that I was an atheist change my program? Not at all, just made it more honest. Did it change my food? Not at all. Changed my relationships. None of my sponsees went running into the hills. And I sponsored some very formally religious women and a lot of very spiritual women. And, and it just made no difference because they know I've had a spiritual experience. Otherwise, I would not be sitting here abstinent after 20, after 47 years. 47 years. And I just want to uh, conclude with one of my favorite paragraphs from the OA 12 and 12, and it's the uh, second edition, of course. And 
uh, is the last paragraph of tradition one. Uh, the first tradition of unity reminds us of an important truth. We are not alone. We are connected to our fellow human beings. Our emotional and spiritual health depends on the health of our relationships. The disease of compulsive eating, which once isolated us, has now led us to OA. Here in local groups, sponsorship rules, intergroups and service boards, region assemblies and OA worldwide, we are learning to connect with other people in ways that nurture all of us as we recover together. And with that, I pass. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. If you asked a question last week, please wait until the first three questions have been asked before raising your hand. If you have a question, please click the raise your hand icon. Natalie. Hi, thank you so much for sharing your story. It was really encouraging to me. I was just wondering, because you talked about being disciplined and I, I ponder that a lot because I, I have a really hard time being disciplined. Were you disciplined before you were in recovery? Um, I'm trying to think about that. I had, there was, there were certain things that, you know, I was, except that it wasn't, you know, I definitely wasn't disciplined with the food. I wasn't disciplined with my emotions um, in my classroom or out of my classroom. Um, my house was a mess. And uh, now my house is close, but not quite company ready at all times. So I can't, so, you know, just like everything else, it was kind of a combination, but I did bring a certain amount of discipline in, but, you know, but a lot of it was based on fear, you know, like my religious discipline was based on the fear of going to hell. Uh, my discipline was uh, based on a fear of getting caught. Um, and I no longer have a fear of going to hell. And, and I, because of step 10, I have flashes of fear of getting caught, but I get over them pretty quickly. So I can't say that I was disciplined before I, I came in into program. But, you know, in school, yes, I was very disciplined in school and in college, absolutely. Um, but that was because part of that was because I was afraid I wasn't intelligent enough to be there. So, you know, what a mess I was. <laughs> Ellie. Thank you, Ida. Of course, I have dozens of questions, but I'll start with one. Would you talk about the role of service toward your recovery, how it's played or not played? into your recovery. Thanks. Okay. Let's see, my first, uh, after my first birthday, I, had, I went to my first intergroup meeting. This was in the San Gabriel Valley. 
And I walked in as a uh, representative from a media and I walked out on the board. <laughs> and that began 35 years of intergroup service. And uh, doing everything from, uh, you know, chair to special events. Special events is my heart and soul to, you know, chairing uh, my intergroup retreat. And uh, it was, it was quite an experience. And then uh, a couple of years after that, uh, Region 2 was formed and they decided to have a convention. And I, I was privileged to attend the first Region 2 meeting ever. And uh, one of my friends became the uh, chair of the convention. And I very casually said, oh, I'll help you. And uh, that started work on 12 Region 2 conventions. And what I'm saying is that I don't know if it was, oh, I take that back. I was about to say, and what, and I didn't know if it was good for me or for Owen, but it was good for both of us for Pete's sakes. You know, I made my best friends in this program through service, getting to, you know, you don't know anybody till you've worked on a committee with them. I'm telling you, if you think you know somebody, work on a committee with them. And uh, I did that until uh, 2009 when I, uh, realized I can no longer do that kind of uh, service um, like a lady, and I stopped. So since 2009, well, I did do, I did continue some uh, intergroup work, and, uh, and I sponsor uh, a lot of women. People ask me how many, and I just say too many, and, uh, but Almost all of the women that I sponsor are longtime abstainers, and you would think that would make my life easy, but it doesn't. And uh, I, um, so, so my service now, the service that I do now is I speak and I, uh, and I sponsor, but I, I do not do I do not do business, I do not, let me try one more time. My teeth are not working. I do not do the business of Overeaters Anonymous anymore. I've been around long enough so that other people need to do it. And I don't need to do it anymore. And it's not helpful for my peace and serenity sometimes to get into OA business, to be very honest. So, uh, but service, the fellowship of service and just, being able to carry the message has been a real joy. Okay. Um, Annalise, I'm sure, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's okay. It's Ainsley, Compulsive Reader. Thank you so much for your honesty and your um, vulnerability. Um, I've recently become atheist. and I'm. How do you deal with the whole turning your will over to God and to the, just all the God talk? Well, uh, with the, um, the prayers in OA, I, I've learned to secularize them and so that they fit my, my meditation practice. Uh, with the others, with people uh, talking, uh, that is their story. They're completely entitled to their story and I just let it roll. 
I just let it roll. And uh, I get, I do get phone calls or references. Uh, people send their sponsees to me who have problems with the God stuff, you know? And I go, well, that's no excuse not to abstain. You know, you get to abstain anyhow, whether you believe in God or not. Um, it's amazing. Um, I just, you know, it really is a live and let live thing. And I just tell my truth. And that's it. Oh, but uh, I do have a higher power and it's the process of the 12 steps. This past week, I got, uh, I got my feelings hurt incredibly badly. And uh, the answer uh, for me was to write inventory because that's, see what I turn to when I'm in trouble is uh, the process of the 12 steps. And whatever I turn to when I'm in trouble is my higher power. And you know, for my first 29 years of my life, it was food. And now it's the process of the 12 steps. Okay, Rachel. Hi, Rachel from Pennsylvania. Thank you for your share. Um, how do you start a new sponsee off on a food plan? You mentioned if they ate too brittle, you'd have an issue with it, but how can you tell them to follow? What do you do to start a new person off? Thanks. I am not a good food sponsor. <laughs> I am just not a good food sponsor. I just kind of say, you know, uh, well, if it's working for you, you know, but I, as a matter of fact, I've just sent, uh, you know, some, one of my sponsees um, to um, a kind of a special meeting where they deal more directly with uh, developing a food plan. See, I didn't have any help developing mine. And I just don't know what you you can do. You know, I heard a great thing a few months ago. Uh, the speaker said, "You know, my abstinence could could kill you, and yours could kill me." So I I just I'm very willing to have my sponsees have food sponsors. <laughs> I'm very willing to share the wealth because I really don't care what you eat as long as it's working for you. Uh, however. When I have somebody who's in trouble, I tell them what I do, which is weigh and measure and eat by the clock. That, those two things, uh, especially eating by the clock, has gotten me out of more trouble than about anything else. Because when I was a teacher, forget recess. You know, it could be wall-to-wall -wall food, but it was not time for me to eat. So I share what I do, but um, I'm pretty, I, like I said, I'm not a good food sponsor. Bobby? Hi, I'm Bobby, a compulsive overeater, and I, uh, I'm afraid to ask this question, but I, I, I know it's fear and self-pity, but um, through the years with abstinence on and off, and now abstinence is okay, however, I'm bored. I've had to quit things that always brought me joy, you had to quit smoking. You had to quit drinking. You had to quit shopping. Um, now you can't eat anymore. And it's kind of like, oh, I'm addicted to everything. And now they're, you know, my house too is now company ready. I liked how you stated that. And it's boring too. And um, I realized the steps are there, but 
I can't seem to overcome the boredom. And and that's my question. What have, have you ever experienced this boredom of like giving up everything that gave you pleasure? And what? That's that's my question. Okay. Uh, I came in knowing that boredom was a big deal because I did a lot of eating out of boredom. And my father, good Lord, I didn't even talk about my family at all, but my father was an alcoholic and he died of his alcoholism. He bled to death from his esophagus. But he was a farmer. And as long as there were crops in the field, as long as he was busy, he wasn't drunk. He drank every day. He drank wine every day, but he wasn't drunk. But the minute there was nothing to do, he would go out and get a bottle of whiskey. And then we knew that he would be drunk for until the drunk was over, okay? So I, I was aware of boredom as a huge influence on my food. And I can remember just sitting there thinking, I don't have anything to do. Oh, I know. Five minute warning. Thank you. I know, I'll eat. So, um, but in program, I have, since the pandemic, I've experienced periods of boredom because, you know, I was busy before. I was a volunteer in the school, you know, and I was uh, doing stuff. And, and all of a sudden, I was at home big time. I was very um, sheltered in place with this pandemic. And uh, I am... Um, I got, there were times when I felt like I had nothing to do, but I can tell you one of the reasons I stay in No Readers Anonymous is because I'm still learning. And, and that's interesting and that's fun. Um, Overeaters Anonymous is fun. If it wasn't, I just wouldn't be here, you know, but I am, I'm still learning about myself. And, uh, and I don't mean just little things. I mean big things like perfectionism. I never would have used that word on myself until I started meditating and, and it came up in meditation. And, you know, I have, I have really interesting people in my life. And uh, thanks to Zoom, you know, I've, I'm going to more meetings than I was going to before I before the pandemic, I've never been one to go to a whole lot of meetings. And, you know, and I'm doing like four a week now and on, on a regular basis. And I'm going, what, what happened here? But, you know, life is still interesting. Um, life is still interesting. And my sponsor, oh, my God, I had my first sponsor was a combination of heaven and hell. But I can never forget what she told me about boredom. And I'm she says, either the reason you're bored is because you're thinking about yourself and you're a very boring subject. And I went, oh, shit, you know, just so I need to be, you know, I need to be thinking about other people. I need to be thinking about the program. I uh, need to be uh, reading good books. I need to be watching a lot of British murder mystery things on Britbox, you know, and uh, and uh, 
but I and I need to keep up with my uh, relationships because you know throughout the uh, twelve and twelve it talks about you know our recovery and our personal health depends on our relationships. So I'm I'm doing that. You know I um, and this past year has been very very tough. And not only is my sister very ill, uh, but um, a woman that I've been sponsoring for thirty years died. And uh, it's, uh, you know, life um, and, you know, being with them during those times. Thanks to the fact that I'm not compulsively overeating and I'm present for life. Good or bad, I am present for life. So, um, and service has really helped, helps with boredom, you know, giving, giving service. And even though I'm not willing to do uh, the business of OA, maybe you should, maybe you might want to do business. Any of you guys, all of you do business, do business, keep this thing going. Okay. And there are no more hands up and we're almost out of time anyhow. One minute left. Yeah. I don't, I don't think uh, we have time for another question and I, I can't think of anything else to say. The problem with questions is that I feel like I need to have an answer, but then this, I have this fabulous cartoon I cut out. Uh, and the guy is saying, I don't know. What a relief. You know, so I can tell you, I'm a lousy food sponsor. What a relief. I can do that. You know, uh, I... I will tell you though, I'm a pretty wonderful step sponsor. <laughs> and one of my sponsees taught me this, you know, I was complaining to her one day about not being, uh, you know, perfect. And she said, oh, you don't have to be perfect to be wonderful. And so, you know, I've, uh, I've really appreciated her for that. 